On 19 April 1989, aboard the USS Iowa, an explosion occurred in the number two turret, and 47 sailors died in the explosion. Initially, the Navy determined the explosion was an accident. However, after a letter sent from a sailor to board the ship to his family, another scenario was suggested, one involving suicide. Special Agent Tom Goodman and the agents of the Norfolk Field Office sprang into action, leading to one of the most crucial moments in the history of the Naval Investigative Service. Tom Goodman was an expert in the art of interview and interrogation. He's worked every case in the responsibility of the NCIS. Espionage, terrorism in the Philippines, all types of death, cases. His story is also one of adventure. Since retirement, Tom has completed the big loop in his trawler, The Journey. From North Carolina to Canada, into the Great Lakes, down the Mississippi, and into the Gulf of Mexico, around Florida, and back to North Carolina. Nowadays, Tom leads a quiet life on a farm in North Carolina and welcomes any agent, young or old, to visit. Tom Goodman's career was legendary. From Norfolk, Virginia, to the Philippines, to Iceland, and back to Camp Lejeune, Tom Goodman was one of the best. And now, the story of Special Agent Thomas Goodman. Hey, Tom, how are you doing today, man? Doing great, buddy. Thanks for the call. Man, I am so glad that we hooked up and finally to talk about your career. Um, it was a magnificent career. Um, I don't know everything about it because you were an East Coast guy. I was a West Coast guy. But I know of your reputation, and it's fantastic. And I'm looking forward to talking to you today about your career. And, well, and, and it's in relationship to NIS, Naval Investigative Service, and the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. So, um, and, you know, there's a lot of young agents out there that we, you know, as we talked about before the interview started, uh, that listen to the podcast. And I think they're going to learn something today. I think it's going to be a great educational and entertaining uh, segment of uh, NCIS reports in the field. So I appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Hey, listen, uh, so let's talk about how you got interested and in, in, first of all, uh, you know, your earlier life um, about where you grew up, where you're born, where you came from, and wh how, uh, how you got into law enforcement. Well, it all kind of merges together, actually. Uh, my father was a naval officer. Okay. So I uh, was originally uh, born down in San Diego, California back in 1951. Oh, wow. Uh, Dad was an enlisted man then, but he got a commission. And uh, we moved to Newport, Rhode Island, where he went to officer candidate school. And then to Norfolk, Virginia, where he uh, uh, stayed and uh, continued his career until he retired in 1968. He had been the chief engineer on four major naval combatant ships. And so he went from E-1 to O-3 uh, in his career. And I was very, very proud of him. But uh, when he retired, he was only 46 years old, and I was just 15 years old when he retired. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dad had always designed sailboats and wanted to build one to sail around the world. And so Dad uh, had this 60-footer uh, that he had designed. It was a multi-hull, big catamaran, back in the 60s. So that was before they had catamarans, and so he was a, a kind of a pioneer in that field. And Dad and I built a 60-foot sailboat and uh, launched it in 1973. And uh, then in uh, 1984, we launched another one, a 55-footer. Many of my NCIS or NIS buddies back then uh, remember that because I was stationed in Norfolk. And uh, uh, our SAC, uh, Walsh, he decided that we needed some PT 
and I had asked him if I could go help my dad stamp the mast, put it up on the boat, and he said, sure. And so he had about 15 or 20 agents came to my house, and we all picked up this 70-foot mast and put it on top of the boat. So, <laughs> uh, it, And also, one time uh, on that same boat, I was coming in from a, a trip overseas. I've been gone six months on board a aircraft carrier, Eisenhower, when my dad uh, uh, took the boat out at 5 o'clock in the morning with a whole bunch of people and sailed it in Chesapeake Bay to meet the ship as it came in. And uh, the captain called me on the on the one uh, MC, and he said, "Hey Goodman, he said come to the bridge." And I thought, "Oh crap, that's not a good thing." <laughs> not come a good to- thing to call the bridge. <laughs> call me up at the bridge, so I go up at the bridge, and, and we had taken uh, the ship's uh, officers out on the boat for sail before, so they all knew the boat. The XO had sailed with me. He ended up being a vice admiral, a guy named Bill Hayden, but. Bill was a great guy. So I, I went up on the uh, bridge, and uh, he said, look over on the starboard side. And there was my dad sailing along with a big banner saying, welcome home. That is and awesome. It was a wonderful experience. And, <laughs> and so uh, anyhow, that's how I uh, uh, originally uh, got to the Norfolk area. Interesting. And then uh, after uh, high school, I uh, didn't have a lot of money, and I ended up joining the Air Force to get me some money to go to college. And uh, after the Air Force, and while in the Air Force, I went to college, and then after the Air Force, I I went to Old Dominion University. And in my senior year, uh, I had a roommate named Jim Brownlee, and he was a corporal on the Norfolk Police Department. He and I had been friends since about 14 years old, and uh, he used to come home to all these great stories, and I was majoring in accounting. I wanted to be an accountant or CPA. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, he was telling me, Tom, he said, you know, you need to, you need to try out uh, some criminal justice courses. And I said, I don't, I don't think so. And he said, yeah, I think you'd like the police department. He said, it's a lot like playing sports. And I said, really? Because I was very active in sports. Okay. So uh, anyhow, I got this, uh, this class that I took um, for credit, and it involved going down to the downtown and riding with a policeman for uh, every week for about six, seven weeks. And so I picked uh, uh, to go downtown to the uh, uh, Norfolk uh, uh, Police Department at the uh, uh, Uniform Division, and I got to ride with a guy named Bill Outen. And the first time I rode with him, uh, the sergeant had me sign a disclosure saying I wouldn't get out of the car, I wouldn't help him, you know, everything would be on his own. And as soon as I got in the call, Bill Outen said to me, hey, boy, you know how to work a shotgun? (laughs) Yes, sir, I'm a hunter. He said, well, this shotgun's loaded and unlocked. If something happens to me out here, you better come out with that shotgun. I said, all right, buddy. <laughs> and within an hour, we had a home break-in, and uh, he jumps out of the car. The guy's coming out of the house. He's chasing him. I jumped out of the car, ran after him, and tackled him. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> Maybe I would like to be a policeman. <laughs> Anyhow, that's how I got interested in the Norfolk Police Department. And uh, actually, my senior year at Old Dominion University, I joined the police department. Wow. And I finished my degree while I was a police officer uh, in uniform. Wow. So you joined Norfolk PD. And, yeah, um, 1976. 1976. January 76. What kind of weapon are you guys still carrying in those days? Still wheel guns? A 38. 38 yeah. special. Yes, same with this. This was a 357 when I started with NIS. That's right. Still, were, they, were you carrying like the Model 10, that uh, Smith & Wesson? Or? Yeah, that was the unit. Yeah, that was it. Oh, yeah. Wow, okay. So, uh, anyhow, I was in uniform, and uh, I was at East Oak 
do, uh, which was a high crime area, uh, a lot going on. It was a real, real interesting place to work and uh, made a lot of great friends, some of the best friends, still my, still close friends with, uh, and uh, got into all kinds of stuff. It's just uh, amazing. The amount of experience you get on a big city police department is amazing. Uh, every year you could probably select dog years compared to the federal government <laughs> yeah sure and anyway, um, i uh, spent about a year in, in uniform and then i was selected to be in a, in a uh, special squad that was um, called the fifth platoon it was an undercover unit we did anything that uh, needed uh, crime analysis would, would tell us to go hide in a 7-eleven when it's going to be robbed and stuff like that i did that for about another year they got like, selected for the detective bureau and then I spent uh, four years in the detective bureau and uh, working general crimes and then burglary squad. And then I got selected by the Commonwealth attorney to come over to the Commonwealth attorney as an investigator. Wow. That was a detailed position from the detective bureau. And that's where I got hired in, with NCIS when I was at that unit. So how did you uh, come to know of NIS, NCIS at the time? Well, you know, this is a story that uh, is a little unusual. Uh, myself and a guy named Ben Bennett, mm-hmm. we were we were detective bureau together, and we were taking a prisoner to the federal penitentiary in Lake Placid, New York. And uh, while we were uh, taking this prisoner, uh, I uh, I've always been very very nice to anybody, mm-hmm. whether he's a, a criminal or not a criminal. I treat him well until they mistreat me and then it's a whole different ball game so i was with this guy and, and he was an arsonist and he had uh, worked the deal out with the with the state and the federal government to be able to uh, turn on some uh, people and he was able to spend his time at a federal institution instead of a state which was a lot better facility yeah sure so as we were going there and uh, he and i were talking he said you ever thought about, uh, do you have a college degree? I said, yeah, I do. He said, you ever thought about going federal? And I said, yeah, I thought about the FBI. He said, you ever thought about NIS? And I said, no. He said, well, my dad was a Navy captain. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, and uh, I know a little bit about NIS. So you ought to think about that. And I thought, well, okay, what do they do? He said, same thing as the FBI, except it's specific to the Navy and the, and the Marine Corps. So, uh, I kept being nice to him. We get to Lake Placid. He says, uh, are you interested? And I said, sure. He said, well, let me give you some information. I'll get you. Wait I a said, minute. What? So, wait a minute. This is the arsonist? This is the suspect? This is- give me give me information. I <laughs> said, gonna, what is it? He's going to he get said, you. There's people on the base police in Norfolk that are involved in, in criminal activity. I said, no, I don't, I don't know that. He said, yeah, they're, they're steel cars. And then they sell them to chop shops off the base. They have them towed off the base. I said, you're kidding me. He says, no. He said, well, you need to go tell NCIS about that. So he gave me a bunch of information. I wrote it all down. And I went into NIS, and I met a guy named Charlie Lanham. He was the SAC of Northam. Uh-huh. And a real nice guy. And uh, Charlie, uh, I told Charlie that I was interested in NIS, and I told him about this, this guy I just delivered to the penitentiary. And he said, you're kidding me. I said, no, he said, we have a case on this. We've had a case on this for over a year, and we were looking for a break. And so they sent two agents up to Lake Class in New York the next day to interview this guy and get all the information. And he, was, he talked to them, too, and so that ended up having some arrests made on board the base. So that's what got them interested in me and me interested in them. And I had worked some cases with some NIS agents, but, uh, 
you know, the, and I was at a fly with the FBI about the same time, and the FBI was was uh, uh, looking for me at the same time. Mm-hmm. But the only people that could get waterfront were the NIS, mm-hmm. and I was big into boating. When I was 21 years old, I took my 100-ton captain's license. And so I was a ferry boat operator. I was a, I delivered a cruise out to the ships, ships pilots. I ran chartering with my dad. You know, that was that was a big part of my life. Now, I used to actually run the ferry boat and went from Norfolk to Portsmouth when I, when I was a young policeman. Hmm. So anyhow, uh, that's how I got interested and decided to, to, uh, uh, to specifically go for an for NIS, mm-hmm. and I got hired within about a year. Wow! And what was your first office? First office was Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, where I ended up my career in. What year was did you get hired by NIS? Nineteen eighty-two. Nineteen eighty-two. October. Okay. Yeah, October So, uh, did you, so you you go to, to Camp Lejeune, you come back to Norfolk. So, tell me about Norfolk. Your first, you really, your you, I could say you really your first office. Other than a few months well, in Lejeune. It was totally different, you know, working a Marine Corps base compared mm-hmm. to working on a Navy base. Uh, I enjoyed the Navy base much more. I enjoyed going out to ships. I mm-hmm. enjoyed going out to sea. Uh, I worked a number of uh, uh, cases that uh, I was able to go to sea on, on different Navy ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time on the Mississippi, I went out to sea trying to... Uh, Uncover a uh, uh, narcotic supplier that was only only dealing when the when the ship went to sea. Oh wow! And uh, that was a I wasn't planning on talking about that, but I'll mention it quickly. Yeah. Uh, that was the USS uh, Mississippi, okay. and uh, Greg uh, Phil Olson was the name of the captain, mm-hmm. and uh, he had agreed with me that what I would do is come on in the middle of the night. Nobody would know I was on board the ship. I'd do the unit commander stateroom. And I had three sources that are going to be buying LSD on board. And I wanted to get two to three buys uh, for uh, mm-hmm. each uh, dealer. Mm-hmm. And so I got on board. Only the pe- person who was on board between the XO, the CO, was the uh, fellow that was bringing me my meals, uh, the steward. Hmm. And so, well, you can imagine I'm in an admiral stateroom, so it's pretty darn nice living. <laughs> but within, within uh, eight hours, uh, probably not much further out off the vacates for digi capes before mm-hmm. i had had buys on three different buys uh from three different people and so uh, i was done now this was supposed to be a trip out to sea then back in to mm-hmm. the naval academy up at, at annapolis mm-hmm. and then a bunch of uh, naval academy professors that come board and stuff like that so that's why nobody knew who i was when i came on board so what type what type of ship was uss mississippi at the time cruiser cruiser, cruiser. okay so uh, anyhow, uh, Cap Olson comes in. He says, Tom, I got some good news and some bad news. I said, what's that, Skipper? He said, uh, good news is I know you like going to sea. He said, we're going to be, uh, be out here for a while. I said, what? <laughs> yeah, we're going to be out here for a while. I said, well, that, I said, why? He said, well, that's the bad news. Hurricane came up off the coast. <laughs> and they're pu- trying to get past this hurricane out towards Puerto Rico. I said, okay, well, let me talk about a rough ride, oh. buddy. It rough, you got to about 70 knots and probably 25-foot seas. And, and you've been shanghai Four or five days later, we got back into Norfolk. Uh, but anyway, it was a fun trip. I enjoyed being out at sea. But within, uh, uh, within a few hours of him telling me that, I came out overt. And so I stayed, uh, I got with the chief master at arms, and I said, buddy, I said, this unit commander's stateroom is uh, nice and calm seas, but it's a bear in uh, this hur- the hurricane weather. I said, 
Yeah, do you, do you have anything down at the Chiefs' quarters? Because, you know, the Chiefs are yeah. smart. They got, they got the best bird then. That's you right. Know, down low in, the, low in the ship where it's not rolling so much. So uh-huh. I got down there and for a couple of days. It was soup and sandwiches and just trying to hold on. <laughs> but, but it's fun trip. Oh my good! Yeah, because the Admiral Statement would probably be up, uh, up uh, higher yeah, in the superstructure. Right behind the bridge, right behind the bridge. Oh, so you're up on the it's high up on the superstructure. Solid water over the bow. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that must have been a trip to be in a, hur- a hurricane type weather. Yeah. Well, I had lots of cases like that. We yeah. were very successful. Uh, actually, I, I was awarded the uh, Age of the Year by the Naval Legal Service Office for mm-hmm. a bunch of different cases. And had a lot of great friends, uh, great agents that I worked with. Uh, I never did a case that wasn't involved with a whole lot of people. I just I just happened to be the guy usually doing the interrogation, and, and people would center on that. But it was always a, a team unit, just like playing football or anything else. You know, and I, I was a part of a great teams. Sure. Well, well uh, so that first, so you got agent year by the Navy, Navy Legal Service Office. Um, um, tell me about some of your significant cases that helped get you that award. Oh, uh, you know. Geez, there were so many investigations, but uh, I'm not sure if this was at the same time or not, but I, I was uh, involved, heavily involved in the U.S.'s Iowa explosion. Mm-hmm. That was one of the cases, and, and I have had the opportunity to be involved in six different espionage cases. Wow. Uh, and uh, the, the Iowa case, uh, you know, everybody's heard about the Iowa case, mm-hmm. and it was uh, very interesting. I spent about 18 months on that investigation uh with a lot of other agents we yeah. had we had almost the whole agency had leads that were going out everywhere but uh in norfolk uh we had ed goodwin ed goodwin went with me on most most of my different uh uh, uh tdy's where i was interviewing family members of the suspect and doing search warrants out in, in uh ohio mm-hmm. places like that but uh, one of the nice things about Having that big a case was I did all my own major leads yeah. and did get to go to Iceland as a part of one of my leads. Yeah. And Al Carballo and and a few other guys that had been there told me that I would really enjoy uh, uh, working in Iceland. Mm-hmm. And so I took the time while I was up there doing that interview to see what it was like up there. And eventually I got there. That was my next office yeah. uh, after the after that in Norfolk. But um, anyhow. No, the Iowa case uh, was after I came back from the Philippines. I, I was in Norfolk and uh, went early, and, and I guess in my fourth year, I got selected as an ASAC for Manila mm-hmm. at the at the embassy there in uh, Philippines. So you and were down I, in Guantanamo, uh, excuse me, not Guantanamo, uh, down in uh, Manila Bay. Were you, is that where you were located in the Philippines when you went there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, so yeah. up, up in Manila proper. As a matter of fact, uh, while I was there, I was single. Okay. You know, I'd been divorced for about five years at that point, mm-hmm. and uh, I, the, the, they gave me a house that was 5,400 square feet. Wow. By myself. I had two housekeepers, and uh, I had a buddy of mine uh, that was with USAID, mm-hmm. and he had just bought a brand new sailboat in Taiwan, a 43-foot Bob Perry design cutter. Mm-hmm. And so he had it down in uh, Manila. And uh, he uh, didn't know how to sail. So I was teaching him how to sail. We were sailing to all these different islands, Corregidor, and, and different islands off the coast there of Manila. Mm-hmm. And uh, within about six months, he said, Tom, he said, i got a problem. He said, I've got, to, 
I've got to leave and I've got nobody to take care of my boat. He said, until I can get it shipped back to the United States. Um, and I said, his name was Bill. Uh, I'm trying to think of his last name. He ended up being the ambassador to Belize. Oh, wow. So I said, uh, well, you know, I'll help you out as much as I can. He said, well, if you'll take my boat, I'll give it to you. You can have it. You use it all you want. Just pay the cost for keeping it at the Manila Yacht Club. And uh, I'll uh, I'll send for it, and if you'll sail it to Cebu, it's about a 300-mile open ocean run to Cebu. Mm-hmm. I said, I'll do that, I'll do that for you. Yeah. And he could, it could be loaded as cargo in Cebu. Mm-hmm. So I ended up uh, having that boat for uh, until I left the Philippines, and I sailed all over the Philippines with a lot of different NIS agents, CIA agents, and uh, I've got some great stories. Uh, well, let's let's talk about that a little bit because I want to hear about the Philippines and a lot of people. But, the Philippines you know, has got a, a, an interesting reputation with the with the agency. And yeah, well, it's that great was to talk Subic Bay was six hours for me. I was up in Manila. Oh, okay. And, uh, Steve Einsel was the sack. Really good guy. Very very locked into the Philippine culture. His wife was a Filipina, uh-huh. and uh, buddy, nothing happened that he didn't have information about. He was a great agent. And then we had a, a number of other agents uh, uh, in the office that were just super people. Yeah. And uh, uh, we had um, Steve Smith. Yep. He ended up uh, retiring uh, as a, uh, one of the EADs, I guess. And uh, Steve Schiebinger. Mm-hmm. And uh, folks like that. So uh, anyhow, so t- I started I started using the boat operationally. Okay. The, the, uh, I don't know how much I can talk about over the, <laughs> what we did. <laughs> One of the things we did was there was a vessel from a, from a foreign country mm-hmm. that was hostile to the United States, okay. and we had had we had word that this ship was going to false flag and was going to go off an island off of Manila is about 100 miles away from where we were and it was going to false flag and then go into to Subic Bay and use it as a platform to spy on the base mm-hmm. and so uh, I took the boat without a Federico uh, God rest his soul, he died in Pakistan working for another agency after he retired yeah. and Al and I, he was a great counterintelligence agent you know, uh, I was a crim guy I worked on counterintelligence stuff but I, w- I wasn't the smartest of those guys uh, they really had the, everything dialed in. Yeah. So we, we went out to uh, try to find this vessel, and sure enough, uh, there's the vessel anchored, got the name of it. They're painting out the name. There was, a, <laughs> a, there was a, another country's crew on board, and uh, as I pulled up to the ship, we sailed around it, and Al was videotaping it. I had Jimmy Buffett playing in the cockpit loud, <laughs> and we sailed around that ship. And as I came around the back, they were they were screaming in their language, "Go below, go below!" <laughs> and as we got past it, we started to sail back to Manila. I put the U.S. flag in the stern, and off we went. <laughs> so that IR that came out of that went to everybody. That's great. So the next thing you know, there's an intelligence agency at the embassy that asked me, "Could I teach them to sail?" <laughs> <laughs> They wanted an operational vessel. So they brought in a 37-foot sailboat into Subic Bay uh, about six months later, and I went down with the chief of station, and he and I and some other guys, and I sailed it back to Manila with them, teaching them how to use it, how to use the satellite system for navigation. Mm -hmm. And then they had their own boat. So uh, I forgot about that. It was fun. 
that was that is, that's awesome man you get to do a lot of sailing you know and for other agencies too i mean they're you're teaching everyone about uh yeah. shipboard ops and doing sailing <laughs> That was when I got recruited by them. And uh, if you ever do the math, if you get recruited by another agency, <laughs> they start looking at the difference between being a federal agent and uh -huh. not being a federal agent. Uh -huh. you, they, they told me that I'd make as much money because I'd be TDY. I said, how often would I be TDY? They said, probably about 40 weeks a year because they'd, they'd have me on, on one of their ships. I said, I'm not going to do that. I appreciate it. No thanks. <laughs> thank you, but no thank you. Yeah. But uh, anyhow, that was a that was a wild couple of years, and uh, it was probably it was probably the, the one of my best experiences mm -hmm. and one of my very 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 worst experiences. Mm -hmm. And I'll just touch on briefly the worst experience. Okay. Uh, I was I was working with an FBI agent on a fraud investigation mm -hmm. uh, out of the embassy and, and uh, down in Subic Bay, and we had just finished what we were doing. We were about halfway. It was about a four to six hour drive, and I was about halfway between Manila and ha and to uh, Subic Bay. Mm -hmm. And I was coming around a curve on a mountain, and there had been a, a loud crash as we came around the curve. Mm. And I pulled over, and a car had gone under a bus mm. uh, the opposite directions. Mm. And uh, got out of the car and went over to the, to the victims, and I thought that it was a couple sailors and so i i i um, ended up uh calling the base uh, to bob Orham and told him and uh, it ended up being two nest agents oh my gosh so that was a tough time that and is, then yeah wow won't go into that so much but then there was a third agent who committed suicide from oh. my office and i found his body as well uh, along with down. steve smith and steve schumer um, so there, there was, there was a very, we had, we had a number of coups that we went through. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, Steve Schiebinger told me a story about, um, how, um, you kind of the work that they were doing over there, we'll stay out of what the specifics were, but the work that NIS was doing over there with, um, you know, with some of the sources that they were working Right. And right. some of the interesting stuff going, you guys were there during the actual coup of the Aquino yeah. government, right? Yeah, we knew what was going to happen ahead of time. We had sources that were uh, uh, part of the coup. So we knew when something was going to happen, we went out ahead of time. Mm -hmm. uh, one time, uh, this was out of Federico and I, uh, we had uh, uh, the coup had started about 2 o'clock in the morning. And by about 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, it had all calmed down the planes dropping the bombs and the missiles were being shot and the, and the uh, howitzers were being shot and all that had all calmed down. The tanks had calmed down. And the coup was between two army bases that were uh, across from each other on a six-lane highway. So the loyal to, uh, to Aquino were on one side and non-loyalists were on the other. And they were shooting back and forth. And so uh, Al and I went out to get a count, count you know, if planes expended, uh, bullets expended, people killed, you know, we're right now, I are constantly going back to the, to, uh, to, uh, Washington DC. So Al and I got there and, um, we had just come out, we met with this Colonel and we had just come out. And as we came out, a tank came around the corner and started shooting back into the rebels camp. And the rebels started shooting small fire back at the tank. Oh my and I looked and I'm a little slow. 
compared to Al Federico because I looked and Al was about 50 yards away from me going the other direction. And I and I started to run towards Al and they started shooting between the two of us. So I where to go. I went back to the gate trying to get in and they slammed the gate on me. I couldn't get in. And so I laid down in a puddle of piss with a little 38 caliber on my ankle as they fired tank fire back and forth between you know, this play. I mean, rounds were pinging close to me. Oh and um, so after about an hour or so, this tank that was drawn to fire moved farther away. And so there was nothing in one direction. So I took off and I got a hold of Subic and I told him, you know, what had happened. And uh, they told me to get back to the office. And I was like, and I said, no, I said, I've got to find Al. I don't know where Al is. He's out on foot. And uh, I was able to get back to where the car was. And then I find out Al took a cab. <laughs> <laughs> he got back to the office. And so I went back to the office and I said, oh, my God, we almost got killed. You know, I, I, I thought to myself, you know, Vietnam was big when I was young and I was in the Air Force during Vietnam. And I thought, you know, I. If I had been in the Vietnam, I know I would have been the most brutal person in the world because when I was laying there and those rounds were going around, I would have shot anybody to get out of that situation. So uh, anyhow, that was a, another story. But the one story I was going to talk about, which was a positive part of the Philippines, was that uh, down in Cubie uh, uh, Point, there were two bays, two offices down in Subic Bay, Subic Bay at Cubie Point. Mm -hmm. And Cubie Point had... Uh, fantastic sack brooks browning and a, and a really close friend of mine that was the what was the asac tom Beatro. oh yeah beats was the was the uh, uh asac and i was the asac of manila and we had been friends we went to the academy together and, and we were in norfolk together and we were he was a great guy great guy to work with so um they had this fella who um was a senior chief in the navy and he was a, uh, retired from the Navy and became a GS3 copy clerk. His job was to cop, copy messages and get them to the different distribution people that needed it to, to have them. And uh, I was, of course, up in Manila. But um, they had uh, found him on 26 episodes of stealing uh, IRs, all authored by NCIS. Their commanding officer had said that he had heard from other people that worked there. This guy was taking messages and reading them. I'm supposed to do that. So NCIS put in some cameras, I think seven cameras. And within six months, they had him like 26 times stealing stuff on cameras. And so um, Bob Warren decided that he wanted me to do the interrogation, which kind of put me in a tough spot because I didn't work this case. The, the agents were working their butt off, but, you know, I'm coming in to do the interrogation. I had some success in the past. And so uh, I get down there, and uh, it's supposed to be about a, three or four days before they would arrest him, and I would interrogate him. And so um, during this time frame, I start studying about this guy, trying to get all the information I can from everybody that ever worked with him. Uh, Steve Smith, Oklahoma Steve, uh, this guy had been a source for him, so he knew him pretty well. He was telling me a lot about this guy and uh, what kind of person he was, and I'm developing my what I was going to use to be able to get him to talk to me. And uh, I got with uh, Jeff Walton. Jeff Walton was mm -hmm. an expert on Soviets. And uh, we didn't know if this guy was involved with just the Philippine intelligence or whether he was involved with, with the Russians, or now the Russians. 
And so uh, Jeff Walton agreed to be the secondary interrogator, which is a tough job because you just you're sitting there listening and writing and getting it all down. Is uh, I'm talking to this guy. Jeff did a fantastic job with that. And so uh, a week turns into six weeks because the the legal officer, Lieutenant Commander Jim McPherson, says we need to get him with a document on him when we make the arrest. So they waited six weeks until he took a document. He went in the bathroom. He had the document on his person. He walked out, and and everybody snatched him. Bob McSherry and a whole bunch of other guys all snatched him up. You know, Big Bob. Oh, of course, <laughs> another, the, the legend for sure. They brought him to me, and I had taken this room in the NCIS office and took everything out of it. The only thing in it was three chairs and a television set and a recorder. And the television set recorder was in the back behind where this guy was sitting, and I had a had a, had a, um, a blanket draped over it. And so we come in, and uh, this guy said, uh, it takes me 46 minutes to get through the waiver of rights, by wow. the way. But once I got through the waiver of rights, I said, his name was Michael Han Allen. I said, Mike. And what's going on here, Mike? What's up with this document in your pocket? And he said, well, he said, I, I've never done this before, but I would, you know, I used to be a senior chief in the Navy. I'm just interested in what's going on with, with the intelligence here in the Philippines. And so I, sometimes I, I pulled, maybe read a document. And I just happened to go in the bathroom and I forgot I had it. I stuck it in my pocket. And I went home. I said, oh, is it? I said, okay, I understand, Mike. This was just a misunderstanding. And he said, yeah, total misunderstanding. I said, I said, raise your right arm. I said, raise your right hand. Do you, you swear that you've never, ever done anything like this before? This is the first time ever? He says, I swear, Tom, I've never done anything like this before. And I gave a pre-signal to Jeff, and Jeff turned play on the television, took the blanket off, and there was 27 episodes of him stealing documents. And at the fourth episode, as I told the jury, I said, he put his head down and said, turn it off, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, let me ask you about that rights waiver, because this is a good moment for teaching young agents who are just coming in the organization about getting through rights waivers. 47 minutes to get through the Article 31B rights waiver form with this military member. Tell me a little bit more about that and what was going on there. His concern was that he was a, a couple different things. One, he was a pedophile. We knew that he was engaged in sexual activities with children. We also knew that he was a, a drug runner and a gun runner. So he was probably pretty spun up thinking about those things. And so when I'm talking to him, I'm joking with him. You never get anywhere with anybody by being aggressive or mean. Yeah. So I told him, I said, Mike, I said, and he had also been a source for NCIS at one time. I said, Mike, you know more about law enforcement than I do. <laughs> I said, hell, man, if I'm getting somewhere you don't want me to go, tell me to shut up. I'll, I won't talk anymore. Yeah. I said, Mike, you know, what, what happened, man? And I said, he said, well, I know you're going to trick F me. I said, well, listen, if you feel both my hands on your back, then maybe that's what I'm doing, but I don't think that's going to happen with you. I think you're going to have all this figured out. And if I'm doing something you don't like, I'll just stop. How about that? It's okay. And so that's how we got through 46 minutes of the rice, which came out during the trial. Yeah. And uh, because without the confession, 
we would not have had without uh, being able to corroborate the confession, we would never have been able to convict him. We convicted him on 10 counts of espionage. Yeah. But what, at, in San Diego, California, but there was a, a, a uh, lieutenant commander legal officer that was assigned to the case named Jim McPherson. Mm-hmm. Jim McPherson was on the cutting edge of the Navy legal uh, service. He was sharp as a tack, and he, he did a couple things that I didn't think we could do. He, I said, one was that you know, I'm concerned that the Filipinos are going to kill this guy. They find out that we know that he'd been providing them intel. They're going to kill him, and we'll never get to a trial. Mm-hmm. And they, he said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to sequester him, and we're going to take him off the base against his will. We're going to put him in an S-3 aircraft and fly him to Guam, and then from Guam we're going to take him to Hawaii where you can debrief him. Mm-hmm. I said, really? We can kidnap him? He said, yep, we can do that. I said, all right. And the second thing he did was he brought him back on active duty. He had been retired over 10 years. Brought him back on active duty as a senior chief and charged him under the UCMJ. So it wouldn't have to be a public trial. It would be on board the base in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Those two things really surprised me. I didn't know we could do that. That was the second time in the history of the Navy mm-hmm. that they ever brought somebody back on for a trial like that. Yeah. So back in these days... <laughs> So back in these days, you uh, was it, in this particular case, did you guys do any any type of audio recording of this uh, interrogation or no, video? No, back then that that wasn't something that happened. Yeah. No, uh, I had to testify all to it. Wow. Uh, matter of fact, uh, uh, when we were flying, well, we were flying back to uh, Guam. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I, we, we took this S3 aircraft to just put three seats in it. So myself, um, trying to think who went on. I think Jeff Walton, myself, and Jim McPherson took him to Guam. Mm. And uh, he had to pee on the plane. This is a little insensitive, but he had to pee. And uh, I'm, I'm talking to the jury. The jury's asking me, you know, I mean, the defense attorney's asking me this question. Say, you know, wasn't it cold in that plane? I said, yes, sir, it was very cold in that plane. That's why I took off my jacket and gave it to your client. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there wasn't a bathroom on that plane, was there? And I said, well, not really. He said, what do you mean, not really? I said, well, they have what the Navy calls a piss tube. And uh, your client had to use the restroom. He said, well, how big was it? And I looked at him and said, the piss tube? And, of course, the members, you know, a bunch of seasoned Navy guys, they're all chuckling at the jury, at the jury pool. As a matter of fact, when we walked out of that, his civilian attorney came up to me and said, you ate my lunch. I said, <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, uh, uh, Jim McPherson uh, uh, ended up uh, being the admiral in charge of all of JAG for the Navy. And uh, after that, he became the undersecretary of the Army. And Donald Trump uh, had uh, put him in charge of uh, secretary of the Navy as acting right before uh, he left office. So Jim did real well. Yeah, but he, he did. Just- Sharp guy. I knew I'd heard that name somewhere, and I couldn't remember where I heard it from. Now I know. Great, great guy. So anyhow, we convicted him on ten counts of espionage, and he went to prison in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and I got a call from uh, uh, U.S. Marshal Service or whoever it is when they release a prisoner. Maybe in the FBI asking me about him because he wanted to get back his his retirement because he forfeited his retirement as well. And I said, well, I said, you know, there's a couple things that come out in trial. He said, uh, what's that? I said, he's a pedophile. He, and we documented that. 
also he was involved in running guns and drugs. I said, he's not a very nice person. So I don't know what happened yeah. at the end. Well, but, uh, that was, that was an interesting, that was an interesting that happened in uh, the Philippines. So a couple of years in the Philippines and where did you go to after the Philippines? Well, I, I was uh, opted out of management. I was uh, already uh, had been a, a, an ASAC. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to go to headquarters, which was the normal thing. Pavito mm -hmm. uh, and I were the two guys out of our class that, that became supervisors at their fourth year. And um, I, during that time frame, I got married, and I met a girl that was in, from Chattanooga, Tennessee, visiting uh, visiting the Philippines mm -hmm. and uh, visiting her sister, who was. Uh, I worked with, and so uh, I decided that uh, I wanted to get back to my daughter in Norfolk because she was now five and a half, six years old, mm -hmm. and I didn't know her, and I wanted to know her. Wow! I had a great relationship with my first wife. We, uh, we were very close. There was mm -hmm. no animosity or anything like that. So being able to come back to Norfolk was was perfect for me, and that's when I got involved in the Iowa investigation. Interesting. So tell me how that how that all occurred, because it, this is before a time when this is a time when I believe that uh, we didn't initiate investigations. We were asked to come into investigations. Is that correct? Yeah, that was a big controversy. Yeah. Uh, big controversy. As a matter of fact, what actually happened was I'm driving on the interstate coming into work and I hear on the news that the USS Iowa had an explosion and a bunch of crew members were killed. And I had been on board the Iowa, actually went to sea on the Iowa uh, uh, a year before that, working a wrongful destruction or sabotage. In the same turret, somebody had cut their hydraulic lines, uh, causing them not being able to load the explosives into the barrel of the 16-inch uh, gun. And so I knew that turret pretty well. So when I, I got into Bob Tugwell, who was my sack, and Mr. Tugwell, I said, you know, I've worked that ship. I know what's going on uh, in that turret. I said, uh, we need to go out there and, and make sure that this isn't something other than an accident. And he says, I agree. And I watched him call, listened to him call uh, the uh, second fleet and, and tell them we needed to come down to Puerto Rico. And they said, no, this is just an accident. And, that's, and we don't want NCIS to come. And this is one of the reasons why this particular case is one of the reasons why NCIS, through the Secretary of the Navy, no longer had to ask permission to work a crime scene. Yeah. So, so, you, um, so you guys had to wait for the Iowa to actually return to Norfolk. Right. And what had happened was that uh, when it was on its way back to Norfolk, uh, the, uh, one of the legal officers uh, for the for the second fleet there came over and said, Hey, we, we got a letter from this lady. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but sure. who's the sister of a crew member who ended up being a suspect of ours that says that, uh, all of his money is going to a buddy on the ship for, for uh, his death benefits. And she said, that's not fair. It's supposed to come to the family. Mm -hmm. And that's what kicked off us looking into the background of that individual and I, myself and Ed Goodwin, we flew out to Ohio and uh, did a uh, interview with the family and found out a whole bunch of interesting information. But when we were doing the search, and this is one of the things I want to bring out in this interview is when we were doing the search, one of the things we found was uh, uh, a letter that had come back to the family uh, that postmarked the day before the explosion 
that said, you know, if I ever die while I'm working my job in the Navy, think of me as a hero. I love my job. I love the Navy. Bobbity, bobbity, bob. This is one of the pieces of the evidence that I gave the FBI Behavioral Science Unit to be able to do an equivocal death analysis on this particular suspect. Yeah. So also during that during that search, we found a book from World War II that had a chapter on uh, the USS Mississippi explosion mm-hmm. during World War II. It was another battleship, just mm-hmm. like the Iowa, where the powder flats had caught up fire uh, through an ex- a second uh, initial explosion and then blew out the bottom of the ship. The ship sunk. What was interesting was all highlighted in yellow about the ship exploding and how it exploded, which is how the Iowa w- w- uh, had it exploded. So in the, Mis- then, so in the Mississippi... Um, I, I suppose you guys probably read the report on the Mississippi and what uh, the how the what happened with the powder uh, that uh, caused the explosion, which damaged the ship. Was right. it was it very was similar? Act that was highlighted told me that there's got to be some reason why did he highlight this, and then yeah. we also recovered a cassette tape of explosions. Mm-hmm. That's all it was, was one explosion after the other. And in talking to interviewing various people on the ship, there was a lot of things about this individual that was very unusual. So, mm-hmm. anyhow, um, that was one of the things that uh, that uh, most people don't know about these letters. I think we recovered a total of, it was either six or eight letters postmarked the day before the explosion mm-hmm. with the same theme. Should I die? Think of me as a hero. And, uh, of course, we gave all that to the behavioral science folks. Everything I recovered uh, about this individual, I, I provided to the behavioral science group at the FBI. Yeah. And uh, I went up to them probably three or four times uh, in a, over a six-month period uh, going over stuff with them. And they came out with, with, a, with a definitive that this guy did, conducted the explosion. And they testified before Congress that they're 100% sure, even though they were, you know, being told, well, could it not be, you know, just a bad powder or whatever it is? So they said, no, absolutely, we're, mm-hmm. we're positive. They never came off it that this guy mm-hmm. did this. So uh, anyhow, there's a lot of evidence out there that that uh, was not on the press. It wasn't in the movie that was filmed. It yeah, wasn't sure. in the, you know, uh, so well, people a uh, bad idea. There is um, some agents ran leads that talked about the powder and there was a unstable powder from world war two that was still being used. Yeah. And so there was a controversy of whether or not, you know, could it be that this was an accidental explosion? When we finished our report, uh, and we provided it to the Navy, department of the Navy, uh, everybody was, uh, very satisfied with it and, and felt that it was, uh, the conclusions were all correct. Yeah. And, uh, we well, didn't, can I- didn't make it. We just get provided all the evidence. So, Tom, let's go back to when the ship pulls in. You guys, are, you, you, how did you get involved at that point? When did the Navy say, okay, yeah, come on and take a look at this? After the letter. After the letter? After the letter came out. Yeah, that's when the management went back to the Navy and said, listen, there's something here that's not making sense. We need to look at this. And they said, okay, go ahead. Had the, but and, they already cleaned up everything. Yeah. They had deflooded it because they, they had to flood that turret to stop the fire. Yeah. Uh, they were lucky they didn't lose the ship. Yeah. There was a lot of heroics that went on to save that ship. Yeah. And uh, 46 crew members were killed. Yeah. And uh, were, uh, so anyhow, it was a, it was a it took me 18 months on that investigation. I worked it. Probably 200 NCIS agents yeah. worked on that case 
uh, running leads, and you know, we were very invested in that investigation. Well, Tom, you know, when we were talking the other day, I was, uh, it's just interesting. You had to use some unique um, investigative techniques, if you will, to kind of understand that turret versus, no, so you actually went to another battleship and looked at that yeah, turret and, and compared the Wisconsin yeah. and compared it to the Iowa. And, right. and what did you find during that portion of your investigation? Oh, very little. Very, very little, you know, but there were, there were a number of experts. Uh, uh, one gentleman who was a chief that they brought back in that had worked on battleships years and years and years ago, and he was a wealth of information uh, about how it all went by, happened. But what was interesting was that the, um, the uh, crime scene pictures that were used and provided the behavioral science unit uh, supported the conclusion that, that the uh, ram was, was being over-rammed into the 16-inch mm-hmm. uh, gun and that uh, this particular suspect was laying on the chain trying to stop it uh, from trying to uh, bring it back when the explosion happened because wow. it all went across his back. And so that's there's, there's a lot, a lot of scientific uh, evidence to all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because I had, I had looked online to see, and there was actually some recordings of some type on uh, what was going on in the in the uh, the turret at the time uh, mm-hmm. regarding right. the communication they, they, to sailors. Yeah, I, I don't remember all that specifically, but yeah, yeah. there was a fellow, uh, one of one of the guys, his name was Bat Herms, that was that was uh, saying stop, stop, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, it was a it was an interesting case, and then of course you know once it gets political, mm-hmm. uh, then it's not about the truth; it's about what political side you're on. And one yeah. one side wanted to get rid of battleships, and one side wanted to keep battleships. So mm-hmm. if you if you want to get rid of battleships, you said the battleship was bad. Mm-hmm. If you want to keep battleships, you said it was an individual that committed the crime. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it got kind of colluded, but uh, and then then the the movie industry decided to make a, a movie of it. It was so far off. Uh, it was so far off that I then that was <laughs> I was a skinny guy, <laughs> and, and, I, and I was doing I was doing a very controversial interrogation of this suspect mm-hmm. in a hangar bay, smoking a cigarette <laughs> and kind of pushing him around. And everybody knows me. That's not me. So. Uh, t- so, so what was different about? Okay, so let's talk about that. What was different from the movie's version? Uh, which I, I'm sorry, what do you remember? What the name of the movie was? Uh, Glimpse from Hell. Glimpse from Hell. Okay, I'll have to look that look. up. Glimpse from Hell. Uh, and so, um, in the in this particular, it shows you're smoking a cigarette. You're inter- you're interrogating him in the middle of a hangar, some you know, in a, whatever. Yeah. And. Pe- Tell, tell me about the actual interview of the guy when you guys were talking to him. It, it went on some uh, some period of time. It was one of the long yeah, interrogations um, like we yeah. do. And, and there are a lot of people involved. That. Mike Dorsey was a big part of it. Greg Scoble yeah. was a big part of it. Uh, uh, Dave Baldwin. Uh, but when I interviewed uh, this fellow's, uh, the fellow who got the money, yeah. uh, he... Uh, he talked to me. He talked to me at length. I mm-hmm. uh, didn't believe what he had, had to say, but uh, he did. He didn't uh, ever uh, ask for an attorney or anything like that. Yeah. And uh, but it gave us some insight into the individual. Yeah, that's interesting because I mean maybe it's a good time to just kind of mention how interrogations went at the time. Um, yeah. A lot of us. Well, were... well, let me give you my a, a quick philosophy of mine about interrogation. Okay. 
Okay. Interrogation is probably the one thing that I miss mm-hmm. being retired. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed interrogation. It was a contest between me and whoever I was interrogating mm-hmm. to get the truth. But also remember, it's just as much our responsibility at NCIS to determine somebody didn't do something as they did do something. So it's never one-sided. You want to get the truth, whatever the truth is, good or bad for your case. But number one, when you go in to talk to somebody and you're going to interrogate them, they've got to like you. If you walk in with you, son of a bitch, I'm putting you in jail the rest of your freaking life. They're not going to talk to you. I learned that from a homicide detective in Norfolk, Virginia, Mm -hmm. uh, that was a fantastic interrogator. They're going to think that you're important. They can't think you're just some typical agent. I remember on one spy case, I told the guy I was the director of counterintelligence for the Naval Criminal Investigative Service (laughs) to get him to confess to me. Uh, Also, you've got to minimize the crime. Mm -hmm. Somebody has just raped a four-year-old doesn't want you to tell them what a terrible person they are and how they're going to jail and hopefully they'll hang. They want you to tell them that, you know what, that was a foxy little girl. You know, I could see what made you think that. You know, that wasn't you thinking. That was another part of you thinking. And you didn't really mean to do that, did you? Are you sorry? Tell me, are you sorry? Because this is not you. That's what they want to hear. They want to hear some way of justifying whatever the atrocity is that they did. So you got to minimize it. Right. And they got to think that you're somebody that can help them, mm-hmm. that you're not judging them. And that later on, when, when you tell them, listen, this is the best thing for you. The best thing for you to do is to tell me about what happened. You know, and if, if you didn't mean to do that, then that, that's a different story. You know, we'll work that out. I remember having a chief on board the USS Spadefish selling pounds of marijuana. Mm-hmm. I said to him, buddy, I said, now, you didn't sell more than four or five pounds at a time, did you? Mm-hmm. No, I never did that. I never sold more than a quarter pound. <laughs> well, and it's all about changing it up, you yeah. know, to, to look better. So, oh, is that all it was? Okay. On that particular ship in the 1980s, we took over 80 crew members off the submarine at one time. Wow. Yeah, the USS Spadefish. But anyhow, uh, always when somebody doesn't talk to you, always tell them at the end, listen, buddy, you know, you made a big mistake. Uh, You should have talked to me. And I'm going to go let you go. But I want you to know that I'm open for you. Anytime you want to come back and get the truth off your soul, I'm going to help you. Yeah. Because if you tell them and you kick them out the door, you son of a bitch, you should have told me I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, get you. They'll never come back. And I've had people come back and talk to me. Wow. So, so you cannot you ever use confrontation. It just does not work. Yeah. Just done. So anyhow, I was going to tell you another, another story that I thought was kind of, kind of, kind of strange. It was 9-11, right after 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows where they were when 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. I was wa- I was watching Fox News uh, <laughs> in Iceland in my office uh, doing some paperwork mm-hmm. when all of a sudden, you know, that first plane had hit. Yep. And I looked at it and went, holy crap. You know, that, that, and then they showed the little bit more plane. You could tell it was a bigger plane. Well, Bin Laden was on everybody's list at that time we we everybody knew about it through irs that he was an individual that wanted to do something against america well i called the admiral up 
Admiral Wakewitz, and I said, Admiral, I said, you know, plane just hit the the, the uh, towers. He says, yeah, I'm watching it. And then while we were talking, the second one hit. And I said, Admiral, I said, we're at war. He says, I'm closing the base. And he shut the base down. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to DEFCON 4. Mm-hmm. And, of course, nobody could get on. Nobody could get off mm-hmm. the base. It was just freaking amazing. And um, Iceland, at the time, had no uh, terrorism division. They had nobody to investigate terrorism. They just had police. And so uh, I got asked by the, the chief of the uh, of the uh, superintendent of police for the country to give a briefing on terrorism to the to the uh, uh, prime minister. Mm-hmm. I said I would. So I went to the ambassador and told her what I was about to do because uh, you want to make sure you include the State Department. Anything you do when you're talking with a, a diplomat from another country, mm-hmm. you know, I had. I was uh, I was on the uh, country team for about six embassies at one time, so uh, anyhow I go to uh, to meet with uh, the ambassador and uh, superintendent of police and a bunch of other folks are there. And I said uh, he was telling me very sorry about what happened to the United States, and it was just the, the two days after I think, and uh, very conciliatory. And, and uh, he said, "Well, I don't think we have a problem in our country." I said, "Well." Do you know how many people you have from Middle Eastern countries in Iceland? He says, no. I said, you have 1,492. I said, you want their names? <laughs> and he looked at me and went, what? He had no idea. Wow. He had no idea how many Chinese were in that country. Wow. And they were all at the University of Reykjavik, Iceland. Wow. Hundreds of them. And so uh, with that, I started, I went to Shape Belgium. I met with the uh, uh, folks there to get, uh, Iceland did not have a seat in Shape Belgium with other NATO countries on terrorism. And so I arranged uh, to get a spot for a uh, Icelandic representative to come over to, to Shape Belgium and live and start up a program. So I started that program in Iceland and, uh, as a matter of fact, it was a very close friend of mine that uh, got the job, Oscar Thormanson, who was the chief of police for the uh, where the base was. And um, Oscar took that with his wife, Helga, and we're still close friends. And um, he did a wonderful job. But the uh, four-minute Iceland uh, honored me with, uh, with an award uh, for starting that department. And uh, the director at the time, deputy director at the time, Tommy Beatro, mm-hmm. came over and... Uh, when they presented it to me, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But um, we had a lot. We had a lot of real hard chargers there in Iceland. Great guys. Andy Snowden was one. If you know Andy, yep, very well. Brilliant guy. Great Did, guy to work. Were you working with Barry Marucci as well? No, Barry was before me. Oh, was he? Before okay. I, yeah, he sure was. I was in Iceland twice. I went there uh, uh, after the uh, after the uh, uh, Iowa case. Mm-hmm. And then I went back again a second time. No, after my first carrier, I took two carriers, and each time I used it uh, uh-huh. to go where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went to Iceland, then Sardinia. And then from Sardinia, uh, I went to uh, Jacksonville. Uh, Cecil Field is the SAC. Mm-hmm. And then moved over to the SAC of Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, they asked me to come to headquarters, yeah. which is... Moted and come to headquarters. And I remember Greg Scoble 
one of my one of my good buddies, great guy, great great mentor to me. And uh, Greg and I were talking. He says, "Tommy, if you go back, it's a sack of Iceland." Yeah, because then Iceland covered Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Finland. Wow. So I'd be downrange in all those countries that I'd love to go to. And and he said, "You'll you'll never get promoted. You'll you'll never move up." Yeah. And I said, "Greg, you don't understand, buddy. I could care less." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "It's all about the cash for me." Yeah. If I go, if I go to to Iceland. I'll get extra money for being in Iceland. Mm -hmm. And I said, I get to see my family every day. I get to be with my daughter. She's, my daughter is very good in basketball. She was playing. She played for the Icelandic team. And I said, I get to watch her play. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I take my family to all these different countries and, and be able to experience that. And I said, I, th I think that's what I want to do. That is so cool. I, so I went to Iceland. So tell me about Iceland. Because, I mean, I've heard great stories about Iceland. A lot of people said, man, that was one of the best tours I ever had. What was it like being, you know, working for the U.S. Navy in Iceland? I mean, it's, uh, what were the people like, and kind of get, get the experience of being there? Yeah, well, Iceland. Uh, um, I was told all the way back with Brooks Browning, Al Caballo, different guys, uh, Jerry Whitaker, that uh, Iceland was uh, just what a what a great place. Mm -hmm. And the first time I went there, um, I was working. Uh, uh, Tommy Bitro was the sack. I was the ASAC. And uh, it was just a two years of uh, just wonderful two years. But we didn't have anything outside of Iceland. So we didn't have Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Finland. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a matter of working cases. But there was a real close relationship with the various police organizations out there. Mm -hmm. uh, they loved the United States. They loved coming to the, to the base to play darts. We had a dart league started up by Brooks Browning. And we'd play darts, and they would drink, you know, uh, alcohol that cost two dollars instead of twenty dollars. Oh wow! And of course, we picked up all the tabs most of the time, like this does. Sure. But it was a great experience. But the second time I went there, uh, first time my daughter was a year and a half, two years old. Second time she went in the fifth through the eighth grade, mm -hmm. and so it was a, just a, a really wonderful experience from a family standpoint. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did a lot of traveling. Uh, they would fly me. Um, I'd get over to all the different embassies, and we had agents that were working at all these embassies. Uh, Iraq war was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that uh, I really uh, enjoyed was the fact that uh, there was uh, – I was able to obtain an uh, interpreter for a specific language that was uh, – being used by some Iraqis in Sweden that were fighting down in Iraq and they'd come back and they'd meet and operationally uh, plan uh, in Sweden and Norway. Mm -hmm. And we were able to put, uh, put uh, this person uh, intercepting all their, all their uh, information. So we knew what was happening before it happened. And uh, that was, uh, I can't talk too much about that, but it was a, it was a great time. Mm -hmm. Coley Murray, who went with the state department, he was, he was her handler and took, took good care of that person but uh i remember uh, going to the to the agency and uh offering up this person i had found that spoke that language very unusual language that has senior clearance mm -hmm. and like two hundred fifty thousand dollars for six months to have that person but um they said well just give me their name we'll we'll, we'll handle it i said no 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 i said that's gonna work i said we're gonna i'm gonna put somebody with her he'll be her handler y'all can write whatever you want to write the way ours and and we'll follow up with them so we don't get off base with each other we sure. we're talking and so we 
very successful. Yeah. And that person was ended up being arrested. Oh, wow. So that, that, was, a, that was a great deal. Now, uh, but anyhow, uh, my, my daughters uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. They, yeah. they enjoyed the experience. And, uh, and only NCIS can give you this. Other agencies can't give you any of this. I know. I'm, I remember one time in Denmark, the uh, FBI agent uh, that was, was the legat in uh, Denmark. And I had a lot of contacts in Denmark. And we get tasked by the agency and the FBI because we had, we had, uh, had uh, sources all over these countries. And uh, they'd say, you know, could you I'd sit on the country team with the ambassador and they'd ask me, could you find this out? task our folks to go find it out and they invariably would get the information but it was it was a, a place where ncis really shined and i remember the league guy telling me he wanted to put together a christmas party with all these guys and i said okay we'll do it i said i'll fund it so you'll fund it i said yeah uh, we'll take care of all the costs and because uh, he didn't have any representational funds ncis we have representational funds I was the king of representational funds, buddy. I, could, <laughs> I remember in, in Italy, we, we <laughs> talking to Sicily, sent a, uh, some very important Italian folks to Disney World. <laughs> but it all paid off. You know, cool. It all paid That's off awful. in the end. But, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. I had a great 26 years with this. And... Um, I, I when I left, it was because I had to. I was turning fifty-seven. Yeah. I would have stayed. I'd still be with NCIS. I loved it. Yeah. I loved the people. Yeah. Uh, we had wonderful people to, to work with. It. I, I used to describe NCIS as a little girl dressed in mommy's clothes. They didn't quite fit, <laughs> but, but that uh, my generation left NCIS. We were we were we were fitting in those clothes really well. It was a great organization. And uh, just so so proud of everybody. Well, you, you served in so many places. You served in so many places, and uh, you know so much part of the history. Um, is there anything you look back on now and you go, "Gosh, you know, I wish I'd have done this differently. I wish I'd have gone to this place." Is there anything like that that you look back on now and have any regrets about? Oh, uh, regrets? No, no Good. regrets. Good. No, no, I have any regrets. Uh, the uh, I'll tell you one more quick case. Uh, okay. This will be just very brief. But the USS Bainbridge was a nuclear frigate, and uh, John Harris was my supervisor. This is when I was in Norfolk before I went to Iceland the first time. Okay. And we used to, there used to be this game show. I can name that tune in five seconds, or I can name that tune in whatever. And I used to, John would give me an assignment. I said, I'll, I'll solve that case in three hours. So sure enough, we got this call that the nuclear reactor on board the USS Bainbridge had been scrammed intentionally. In other words, somebody shut the coolant water down intentionally on board. The This is what never gets in the press. The press never hears about stuff like this. <laughs> and it have problems. So anyhow, John Harris says, Tom, Tom, uh, we need to get three or four guys and run over. And so I was just the leader of it, but we all, we all went over to the Bainbridge. And I told him, I said, John, I'm going to solve this in three hours. And at the two-hour and 55-minute mark, the guy was confessing to me, a first-class petty officer, that shut the coolant water down. And I said, excuse me one second. And I closed the door. And when I called John, I said, solved. hours. <laughs> 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 Went back and it took a statement. <laughs> Gosh, that's awesome. 
Well, John Harris another great supervisor. He was a good man. Sure enough. Yeah. You, you've had a lot of good people you've worked with, too, as far as in your, your but, time with NIST. Yeah. Greg Scoville was one of the best. Yeah. Um, yeah, Tommy was great. Tommy Vitro and I, we, we got along so well. He sure. was a great supervisor. And he did really well in NCIS. He deserved to be where, where he got. Yeah. Uh, a lot, lot of guys were uh, just were super, super people to work with. Yeah, sure enough. It's been a great, been a great organization. You've been through that whole change, you know, from NIS to going to NCIS with the Iowa investigation. Well, I'd like to talk just a little bit about life after NCIS. Uh, NCIS uh, gives us so many opportunities to meet so many people in so many parts of the world that we have, and we're so young at fifty-six that there's so much we can do. Mm-hmm. And so, when I retired from NCIS, I immediately picked up a job as the program manager for North Carolina for the Lynx program. And Lynx program, everybody knows, is a law enforcement information program. And I really loved that program. That, that program provided great support to local and state police agencies in North Carolina. But when I got to be 62 years old, I realized that uh, it was time for me to end my law enforcement time and start doing some time for me. And because of my boating background, I decided to take off on my 36-foot monk trawler, my wife and I, Melissa. Mm-hmm. We spent 18,000 miles traveling on that boat, 3,800 hours, and traveled all through Canada and the United States, all the way through Michigan, down the Western Rivers, all the way back down to Mobile and back around Florida and up to back to North Carolina. So we had a great retirement mm-hmm. doing that. And then uh, after that was over with, I decided that when I was in Italy, I lived on a farm. And I loved the farm that I had in Italy. And so I decided that it would be a good time for us to, to go ahead and, and uh, get closer to our, old, our youngest daughter, who was living in Charlotte. And so we uh, ended up buying a 38-acre farm. I came up and, and uh, stayed with uh, Charlie Roberts, if you know Charlie. Mm-hmm. He's a retired special agent in CIS, retired, and stayed with him on his 200-acre farm. And uh, started looking for a farm and found one and bought it. And we, we had no infrastructure, so we built our barns and, and uh, all the ponds and trails and stuff like that. And we have horses. And, so now we're living a wonderful life. That's awesome. And, you know, this, uh, so this is how I met Tom. Um, I met Tom while he was on one of his his wanderlust with the journey. Is that what the name of the boat was? Yeah, the, journey. the journey. And uh, I was in Brunswick, Georgia, as an instructor at, at Fletzy for NCIS, and um, we had a Christmas party. And Tom and his wife, we were so honored to have Tom and his wife join us at the Christmas party. And uh, yeah, Tom was on his uh, about mid. You were on your. You were at the tail end of the journey, or are you just starting the journey? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're on our way back home. Wow! And you guys went. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I mean, you went all the way around Florida, up up into the Gulf. Did you go up the Mississippi, or did you go up which river? Down, did you go up? Down the Mississippi. Down the Mississippi. The name of the, of the trip is called the Great Loop. A lot of people don't realize that the Great Loop is uh, open to anybody with less than 19 feet of height draft and less than five foot of, uh, of draft on their boat. And we left out of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina in May of 2013. Uh, we went up, the, up to the Chesapeake Bay through the Dismal Swamp Canal 
which I probably transited 40 times in my life, but up into Norfolk. And then from Norfolk, we went up to through the Chesapeake Bay, past Annapolis, all the way to Chesapeake City and into uh, Ocean City, Maryland. Hmm. And then from Ocean City, Maryland, I went offshore into Atlantic City anchored as a nice anchorage rest off the casinos and then back offshore and up into new york harbor Mm -hmm. uh went up new york harbor past the the statue of liberty and up the hudson river went about uh 50 miles up the hudson where i docked and then uh, continued the next day went up into lake erie uh, towards lake erie to the erie canal system uh, my plan was to go up the Erie Canal, but a tropical depression had come up at about the same time and had done damage to a couple of the locks. Oh, so wow. we were we were there for two weeks waiting for these locks to open, and they would and they thought it might be another four or five weeks. And I didn't want to be sitting like that, so I started looking at alternatives, and I found that there was a lock, a federal lock, that would get me uh, with 15 foot of height. I could get through a federal lock into Lake Chamberlain, mm-hmm. uh, Champlain. Lake Champlain. Okay. And so I took my mask down and I went up through uh, Lake Champlain and uh, all the length of it, all the way up to the St. Lawrence Seaway. Uh, this this trip took me another 700 miles out of my way, but it was worth it. Oh, wow. So I went up all the way to Montreal. I went down the St. Lawrence Seaway uh, to a, uh, a system of uh, locks, another 42 locks that took me uh, all the way down to uh, uh, Kingston, uh, Canada. And then across Canada, uh, I went to Lake Michigan. And these are remotes of Canada. This is uh, where bear country and stuff like that. There were very little humans with places we were at. It was just <laughs> absolutely beautiful. Wow. Uh, I got hit by a tornado up in Canada. Went right across my boat. Oh, my goodness. Matter of fact, if you go to www.mangosjourney.com, that was my blog. Every day I blogged mangosjourney.com and um, when we got hit by that that uh, that uh, tornado my wife and I uh, were coming up to a lock and the lock was full because the wind is so high that people couldn't get on the other side of the lock so we ended up anchoring and I put almost 200 foot of chain out in 8 feet of water and we're sitting there and the wind's continuing to rise and I told my wife I said I'm going to go ahead and start the engine just in case we start to drag and about the time I went to turn the engine on, we got hit by a wall of white. And the boat rolled uh, all the way over, about 45 degrees. Wow. And then popped. And uh, I thought my flybridge was gone because it, it, the wind was so high. It had been over 100 mile an hour. So I get back up and nothing, no damage whatsoever. Wow. So the next morning, it was beautiful. And we pulled into the locks. Most of the boats had gotten out. And this lady comes up. She says, that was some tornado that hit you. We thought you were a goner. I said, a tornado? They said, yeah, it was a tornado. We watched it come across the water. Matter of fact, I took pictures of it. And so she gave me pictures wow. uh, of the tornado hitting my boat. So it's in my blog. You can, you can see me in the distance with this thing hitting me. Awesome. Uh, and so we continued on, and we went into Lake Mac, uh, uh, Mackinac Island and Lake Michigan, and then down uh, Michigan, down to uh, uh, all the different ports there for about two weeks to Chicago. We got uh, into an altercation in Chicago. I was in a beautiful marina. Had a couple guys come on board at 2 o'clock in the morning. Oh, boy. And my wife said, Tom, somebody's on board the boat. And my dog, Mango, 
the, the blog's named after Mango Sound Asleep. And, and uh, I get up and I walk into the uh, to the main salon, and there are these guys trying to break in my window. So I gave them a significant emotional event, and they dove off the boat and ran away. But oh uh, I'll never go to Chicago again, that's for sure. But, oh, yeah. but anyhow, then we went down through the Illinois River into Lake Michigan. And you pick up Lake Michigan from the Illinois River near St. Louis. Okay. And it was unreal. My boat did eight and a half knots cruising. And when I got, I had about a knot and a half current behind me in Illinois. As soon as I hit the Mississippi River, I was doing 16 knots. I had to power up to get rudder control. Wow. And then seeing these whirlpools all over. And a whirlpool is just a rock that's down and the water swirling around it. Oh so God. you don't want to get caught in that. No. So anyhow, we passed St. Louis and the current slowed down a little bit, but, but that was a wild ride. Oh, so we wow. went to, all the way to uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, up in the Tennessee River, mm-hmm. where my wife's from, because my father-in-law, Sergeant Major Clark, USMC, retired, 92 years old, started the trip with us. We took him 3,800 miles to Chattanooga. Wow. And Dropped him off. He was a wonderful man. He passed here a couple of years ago. And um, so anyhow, from there, we continued down and, and uh, to Mobile, Alabama, and then across uh, uh, the intercoastal in Alabama to uh, Florida, and then across the uh, Gulf of Mexico overnight and uh, down around Florida and back up to Camp Lejeune. Now, with this trawler, you have to use there Sometimes that you're, I, I see a sail on that mast. Were you right, using I have, you, I, that I, I built for it. So you use yeah, wind power to kind of help you. C, a heavy beam C mm-hmm. with a lot of wind. I put that up and that would keep me from rolling. Oh, okay. I, I was cold, but I'd roll slower and, uh, and, and not, as, not, uh, not as deep. Wow, yeah. okay. Yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was a great boat. I had diesel heat. I, had, I could run it in the wintertime or summertime. Yeah, it, was a, it was a wonderful boat. We, we really had a lot of fun with it. What a great adventure that was, huh? Yeah. It was a it was a fun time, but we did a total of eighteen thousand miles. That was just one trip, seven thousand six hundred miles. Yeah, and we we're constantly going up and down the coast. So we can uh, anyone can look at www.mangosjourney.com and can see the blogs, the photographs, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Day by day. Well, that is so yeah. cool. Now you now you started this farm. You're up in North Carolina, and I've seen the pictures on Facebook. It's phenomenal the good work you guys have done there. And yeah. tell, me, tell me about your animals that you have there at the farm right now. Well, right now I have five sheep. I have uh, two females that gave birth to two sets of twins. Mm-hmm. I'm raising sheep right now. Uh, I'm going to raise up uh, just enough for consumption. We butcher two to three per year. Mm-hmm. And we raise hogs, usually four per year. They butcher at about 250 pounds each. I've got two that are about 200 pounders right now. Mm-hmm. They'll be butchered next month. And I've got two horses, and uh, we have two miles of horse trails. I've got uh, 6,500 feet of fence that I've built. Uh, built two uh, barns, one uh, 54 by 60, and then another that's 36 by 14 for the horses. Mm-hmm. And uh, inside my barn is a full living room with satellite television, a full kitchen, and a wood shop. Everything a man could want. <laughs> That's good stuff, then, man. On the outside of my building is where I keep my animals. Uh-huh. And then we uh, currently have 20 meat chickens that are four weeks old. Mm-hmm. I'll butcher at seven weeks. 
there in what's called a chicken tractor I built. And I, that's something that I move around 10 feet every day. So they're on fresh grass mm -hmm. and they're organically fed. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we have uh, two uh, livestock guardian dogs. One's about 135 pounds. The other's about 120. Big dogs. Uh, big dogs. They are uh, 6,000-year-old breeds that uh, have no aggression at all towards animals except a predator. Interesting. A predator comes in there, they'll tear them apart. Wow. But in fact, my, my, my big, uh, biggest dog, Gus, we call him Grumpy Gus, uh, <laughs> Gus uh, has bitten the horse a couple times because oh, I, I put the horse in that pasture for some fresh grass and she stuck her head down into the sheep and he didn't like that. <laughs> that horse was doing something to the sheep so he bit her right in the face. Uh, but, um, and then we raise turkeys and, uh, I have one pet turkey. My daughter talked me into not, uh, euthanizing, not killing, butchering. <laughs> yeah. And I, I give everything away. I don't sell anything. We yeah. give away a lot of food and, uh, just having fun. Both my girls get all their meat from me. Well, my brother-in-law just got a farm in Tehachapi. Um, well, he bought a ranch, a ranch uh -huh. farm. Um, so he wants to grow, uh, make it a vineyard eventually, but, um, realizes the first year he just got his tractor and he's just now starting to think about planting alfalfa, um, mm -hmm. for his first crop, uh, cause he has a lots of horse country up there as well. So a lot of horses, uh, looking for, uh, you know, feed like alfalfa. So it, it looks right. like he's going to raise alfalfa and I'll be going up there to help him a lot. So I'm probably going to be reaching out to you as an expert now in farming because I'm sure a couple of knuckleheads like me and my brother-in-law, who is a former helicopter pilot in the Navy, uh, don't have a clue about how to do things. Yeah, neither did I when I started, buddy. That's what YouTube is all about. Yeah, YouTube's I mean, great, isn't first, it? First time I butchered a turkey, I had a YouTube sit, sitting, uh, sitting in front of me here while I'm cutting this turkey's throat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, it's been great having you on the uh, podcast today, and I've learned so much. And, and I think that's the, the key to is you know having guys like you come on who had so much experience in this job and can kind of pass that on to the new core of agents that are coming in now. A lot of these guys will be listening to this show, and I'll, you know, uh, and they're the kind of people that go, hey, I need to reach out to that guy. I'm sure he would take a phone call from one of the new agents, wouldn't you? Oh, of course I would love to. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoy it. Awesome, man. Well, listen, y'all take care out there on the farm and uh, and keep in touch. I'm going to certainly be continuing to watch you on Facebook, and, and I'd love to talk to you again sometime down the road, talk about some of the other cases here, because I know you've had a bunch of really good cases. So. Yeah. I'd be happy to do that anytime. And tell anybody, any of the new agents that want to talk to me, go ahead and uh, 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 Facebook me, friend okay. me. All right. Uh, my son-in-law is a special agent with NCIS up at uh, headquarters area, cyber guy. And uh, I get to live a lot of NCIS through him right now. We need to, a big thing is to continue to teach people about interrogation. People yeah. watch too much TV and think that's what it's about. And it's not at all. You know, it's really funny. I um, it's um, you know, Mark Fallon is involved in, in yeah, yeah he doing a lot of the work. Uh, I just watched his. Um, he has a thing on YouTube about watching interrogations on TV, and he's kind of giving his opinion on. And that's actually pretty good. You should check it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and okay. but at the same time. It's interesting. The new agents that were coming in now, and they're they're being taught a different type of interrogation. I mean, I came in a Reed school. I was a Reed guy. Um, yeah, great. 
Yeah, I thought it was uh, I, I believe it's a great technique. And now they're coming in with a kind of a science-based cognitive theory type uh, interrogation. And a lot of the, it's really kind of fun to watch because the new agents coming in with this stuff are doing interrogation just slightly different, more of a conversation, but really in a lot of the techniques you talked about as being, you know, you have to have to establish that relationship. You have to have that relationship with the person and you got to be liked in there. So, um, but a lot of the older, it, it, <laughs> a lot of the older age is like, going, at what point are you going to confront them about the crime? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty fun to watch. You get to it. <laughs> hey man, I've been, I've been involved in interrogations that lasted, you know, 14 hours and they make me stop and I go back the next day, you yeah. know, so. Well, I'll tell you, it's a, uh, it is a. It was one of my most. I, I would think that was one of my favorite things to do was conduct interrogations. So well, interview as interrogations, um, it, because I like talking to people. So it was. It was. Uh, it was a fun career for me as well. So, but listen, thank you for coming on the podcast, and we'll be uh, hopefully talking soon. Okay, buddy. Take care. All right. Take care, Tom. What a great interview with Tom Goodman, man. He is a great guy, and uh, I love following what he's doing on the farm down in North Carolina, whether he's working with his sheep or his chickens or his pigs, and, and of course, his dogs. Uh, he, he, such a good guy, and what a great career he had. Tom was one of the best. I wish that I would gotten an opportunity to work with him uh, during our time as agents, but he... Um, was an east coast guy and like i said most of the time i was on the west coast for the majority first part of my career before moving to dc i want to thank everybody once again for listening to ncis reports in the field the podcast is going great and you guys make it that you guys listening and sending me emails at ncis podcast at yahoo.com um, i appreciate the great feedback that you're giving me it's making the shows better it's helping me to choose what um, I think that you'll be interested in listening to. We only got a couple more shows in this season, though. I'm going to take a break for a while uh, and start interviewing more people and then hopefully putting in second season uh, that should be coming up here in the next few months. But I hope that you've enjoyed the show so far. Keep listening. We've got a, a couple more interviews to do um, and to show showcase the history of NCIS from its days of ONI and NIS to now as NCIS. Have a great day. Send me a message at ncispodcast at yahoo.com. That's ncispodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Fair winds and following seas. We'll see you next week.